This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. Hope you had a nice, relaxing Thanksgiving. We're back this week for more truth about the God of Israel and the human Messiah. This is episode 253, entitled The Messiah in Psalm 110. Yes, we're continuing to work through the passages within the Old Testament that defined the expectation of the coming Messiah in the eyes of early Jews and early Christians. And Psalm 110 is, without question, the most influential psalm upon the New Testament, particularly Psalm 110, verse 1, which is the most quoted, echoed, and alluded to passage from the Old Testament in the collection of New Testament writings. Without question, this was a passage that early Jews and early Christians drew upon in order to shape their expectation of the Messiah and of the Messiah's relationship to the God of Israel. So we're only going to be able to scratch the surface in looking at the ways in which Psalm 110 has influenced the New Testament writings. So we're going to summarize and focus on the key points. Otherwise, we're going to be here until next year's Thanksgiving. So here are some questions I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, who are the two lords mentioned in Psalm 110, and how are they distinguished from one another? Second, how are the themes of kingship and priesthood uniquely combined in Psalm 110 as they are distinguished throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And lastly, how do the New Testament authors draw upon Psalm 110 in order to speak about Jesus' exalted empowerment, his relationship to the God of Israel, and his role as intercessor? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. The first point today is a close look at Psalm 110. This is a relatively short psalm, so we'll be able to read all of it and comment on each of the verses. Psalm 110, verse 1. A psalm of David. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So right from the beginning, we can see some very interesting points. First, and it's going to become relevant as we look at the New Testament Gospels, this is what's called a Psalm of David. This doesn't necessarily indicate that David wrote it, because the phrase Psalm of David in Hebrew could be understood as a Psalm to David, a Psalm for David. The preposition la is more of a two or four preposition, but that's going to come up a little bit later in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. But we have the two lords here. The first lord is Yahweh. Yahweh says to my lord. Yahweh, of course, is the personal name for the creator God, the God of Israel. 
Yahweh speaks to someone called my Lord. Now it's interesting to think about who is actually speaking here. Who is actually making this claim that Yahweh says to my Lord? Well, it seems that's something that the psalmist is saying. Is it something that supposedly David is saying? David is saying that Yahweh says to my Lord. Again, that's going to be something that's taken up by the New Testament authors. But Yahweh speaks to this other figure, my Lord. And this second Lord figure is a figure known as Adon, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. It's just a simple common word for a Lord, a master, a polite reference to a sir. But the reference with the first person pronominal suffix, my Lord, that reference, which would be Adoni, in all of the 195 occurrences within the Hebrew Bible, it refers to an individual who is not the God of Israel. And that's no surprise to us because the God of Israel is speaking to this my Lord figure. There's no way that you would confuse the two because they're distinguished here. That's very obvious. A two-year-old can understand that. The God of Israel speaks to this my Lord figure. And the God of Israel, Yahweh, says to this my Lord figure, quote, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So there is this summons to this second Lord figure to come and sit at the right hand of the Creator God. Sit at Yahweh's right hand until Yahweh makes the enemies of this second Lord figure a footstool for your feet. So we can learn a few things about Yahweh here. Yahweh is described with a variety of singular references. Yahweh says to my Lord. That is a third person singular verb. Yahweh says sit at my right hand. My is a singular reference. Until I make another first person singular verb. So Yahweh is a singular person. Yahweh is clearly monotheistic and is a single person. There is no indication here that the God of Israel is multipersonal or tripersonal. Every indication we have here is that Yahweh is a single undivided person. But Yahweh exalts this other Lord figure to sit at God's right hand, which is basically the number two position in the universe. If the Creator God occupies the highest ranking position in all of creation, then to sit at Yahweh's right hand would be to be exalted to the second place position, which is extremely high. And this exaltation seems to be until God is going to subdue the enemies of this second Lord. The enemies are going to be a footstool, which is a metaphor for defeat and subjugation. The feet are up upon the enemies. So we have two lords here. They're clearly distinguished. There's no confusion. They're not collapsed into a single figure. The first one is the God of Israel. It's Yahweh, which is the personal name for Israel's God. And the second one seems to be an exalted figure, likely a human lord. But the figure is clearly not 
the God of Israel. But this second figure is summoned to be exalted to God's right hand, seemingly a exaltation to heaven, until that second Lord figure is going to have authority over his enemies. Let's move to verse 2. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. So Yahweh is going to empower this second Lord figure to rule and to reign in the midst of the enemies. And this scepter, this staff that a king bears, is going to extend the rulership and the kingship of this second Lord figure. And it's going to go from Zion, meaning that this second figure is a royal figure that is ruling from Zion. And so we're seeing that this is a reference to a royal figure, a kingly figure, likely the king of Israel, the king of Zion. Zion is the metaphorical reference to Jerusalem. So this exalted figure is also a royal kingly figure. And his rule is also empowered by Yahweh, because Yahweh is going to stretch forth the scepter that belongs to the second Lord. So not only is Yahweh empowering the exaltation of the second Lord, Yahweh is empowering the kingly rule and reign of him. Verse 3, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. What does it mean that your youth are to you as the dew? Well, the dew is just there. It's all over the place. It's something that once you wake up, it's all over the ground. It's just so common. It is widespread. And the point here is that the people are going to flock to and they're going to attend to this second Lord figure. They are his people. They're going to be dressed in holy array. And they are going to be as numerous as the dew upon the ground. Now, a lot of people have made a little too much of the Septuagint translation of verse 3, which seems to suggest something about the coming into existence of this second Lord figure. But that's clearly not what the Hebrew is saying here. There seems to be a misunderstanding of the Hebrew, or maybe there was a corrupted version of the Hebrew that the Septuagint translator was taking hold of. What is clear, though, is that the Septuagint translation of Psalm 110, verse 3, is never cited, quoted, or alluded to in the New Testament. And because of that, we don't need to pay it any more mind. The Hebrew is quite clear, and the Septuagint is not drawing, at least quite clearly, from what the Hebrew original has stated. Verse 4, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priests forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now this is something that we did not expect. We did not expect that Yahweh is going to designate the second Lord figure to the role of the priesthood. In fact, he's going to be a priest not from the order of Aaron, not from the Levites, He's going to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, who is a priest 
from the book of Genesis who chronologically predates Aaron and the Levitical tribe. So he's a different type of priest. But what we're seeing here is that Yahweh is empowering this second Lord figure with not only the exaltation to heaven and the ability to rule from Zion, but also with the role of priesthood. He's going to intercede as a priest for the God of Israel on behalf of the people. That's what the priest does. A priest, by definition, is someone who is distinguished from Yahweh because a priest mediates Yahweh's holiness and forgiveness to the world. Then we see something interesting in verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Now, this Lord is a different word that we haven't seen thus far in the psalm. This is Adonai. Adonai is another reference to the God of Israel. Adonai is distinguished from Adoni. Adoni is the second Lord from Psalm 101. So this Lord is Adonai, which is synonymous with Yahweh. So what we're seeing here is that Yahweh is at the right hand of the king, the second Lord figure. And what this means is that the king is able to use Yahweh in order to execute his actions. And this is not something that is quite rare. We can see this throughout the book of Psalms. In fact, the very last verse that precedes Psalm 110, the last verse of Psalm 109, indicates that Yahweh is at the right hand of that particular psalmist. So this is something that does show up in the Psalms. It indicates that Yahweh is ready and able to enact and to perform the needs of a particular figure. And Yahweh is going to shatter the kings in the day of his wrath. Well, that's no surprise because Yahweh is the one who is empowering this exalted Lord figure. Verse 6, he will judge among the nations, fill them with corpses, shatter the chief men over a broad country. So we're seeing the role of judge, but also the person who deals with the enemies. He is someone who is going to enact judgment upon the wicked to the point where the corpses are going to rise high among the nations and the chief men are going to be shattered. And lastly, in verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the wayside, therefore he will lift up his head. He's going to be restored by refreshing himself with water, and lifting up his head is a sign of virtue and piety towards the true God. So there's a lot of interesting things that are said about this particular psalm. Clearly, the God of Israel is empowering another figure in a variety of ways. He's empowering him to function as the priest. He's empowering him to occupy the royal throne, to rule and reign as a king. And of course, he's empowering him in being exalted to God's right hand, which is being exalted to the number two position in the universe. That is quite extraordinary. So it's no surprise that the early Christians, having recognized that Jesus is the one who has been chosen as God's Messiah, as the anointed king of God's kingdom, and as the one that was 
not only raised from the dead, but exalted to God's right hand. They clearly latched on to Psalm 110 and saw what has taken place to Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of Psalm 110. So let's turn to the New Testament. Point number two is the use of Psalm 110 in the Gospels. Now, I'm going to point out two particular places to where Psalm 110 is quoted in the Gospels. Particularly, it's quoted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So all three of the synoptic authors draw upon these stories. And the first one, I'm just taking from Matthew. I could take it from Mark, could take it from Luke. They all basically say the same thing. The first one raises the question about the relationship of this exalted Lord figure to David. Remember that Psalm 110.1 says it's a psalm of David. So the question is, is this talking about David? Is David saying this about another person? And so that question gets raised here. So in Matthew 22, starting in verse 41, it says, Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. That's Matthew 22, 41 through 46. So Jesus begins by asking the Pharisees a question. He asks about the Christ, about the anointed kingly figure, the anointed one of God. Whose son is he? And they said that he is the son of David. That is clear. Israel's Messiah is the son of David. He is a direct human descendant of David. And that's something that all Jews in the first century who expected the Messiah understood. They recognized that the Christ was a human descendant of David. And then Jesus, who is going to draw upon Psalm 110, draws upon the fact that the Psalm of David indicates that David says that Yahweh says to my Lord. So David calls the second figure a Lord figure. Now Jesus is assuming that the second Lord figure is the Christ. That's something that's very interesting. Now, we could have assumed that from Psalm 110, especially verse 2, when we saw the royal themes that were being drawn upon from Psalm 110, that the second Lord figure is going to rule in the midst of Zion. He's going to be a royal kingly figure. But Jesus makes that point explicit, while the psalm kind of implicitly makes that point. But Jesus asked the question, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And the logic of this question comes from the fact that sons, by definition, were to be of a lower rank than their ancestors. Ancestors were thought of as a higher rank. Fathers were ranked higher than sons. Another reason for the inequality between the father and the son. But if the Christ is the son of David, then by that logic, David is ranked higher 
in the Christ. But the expectation of the Christ among the early Jews and early Christians knew that that certainly could not be true. Clearly, the Christ is going to be the highest ranking king in all the earth. But Jesus points this out by the interesting point of Psalm 101 that David calls the son of David Lord, indicating that David is going to recognize that even though this descendant from him, the son of David, the Christ, is, according to that logic, of a lower rank than David the ancestor, David is going to call him the Lord that is exalted to Yahweh's right hand, indicating that the second Lord figure is actually exalted above David. So what Jesus does is he indicates that Psalm 110 is something that needs to be considered in the messianic expectation, and it raises the value of the Christ as someone who is going to be exalted to God's right hand, and someone who is going to subdue the enemies. So there, Jesus is able to draw upon Psalm 101 in order to further flesh out, no pun intended, the understanding of David's human son. Now at the trial of Jesus, the question is asked of him whether he is the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus responds in Matthew 26, 64, you have said it yourself, nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. That's Matthew 26, verse 64. So what Jesus does here is that when he is asked whether he is the Christ, the Son of God, he affirms it by saying that they will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. So a figure sitting at the right hand of power is clearly an allusion to Psalm 110. That here Jesus says that that second Lord figure is the Son of Man. He is the authorized and empowered human being. Clearly indicating that the second Lord figure is a man. He's a member of the human race. So what Jesus does is that he affirms that the title Christ, Son of God, and Son of Man functions as synonyms for titles that refer to him. And in doing so, he still distinguishes himself from the God of Israel, from Yahweh. The Son of Man sits at the right hand of power. He doesn't even say the name of God. He uses this respectful circumlocution. It's the right hand of power, not the right hand of Yahweh. Now, all Three of the synoptic authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, will use those two references in the Gospels to describe Jesus, and each of them draw upon Psalm 110, verse 1, in some unique ways to further clarify the role and the identity of the Messiah, but of course, in a way that also clearly distinguishes the Messiah from the God of Israel. The two are never confused, and the two are never collapsed into a single being. Let's move to our third point, the use of Psalm 110 in the book of Acts. So in the book of Acts, we have a variety of speeches. The first speech comes from Peter. And Peter says in Acts 2, verse 33, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. 
For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Acts 2, verses 33 through 36. So here we can see the clarification of David's role in Psalm 101. It's not a psalm of David describing David as the second Lord in Psalm 110, because it's not David who ascended into heaven. David was not the one who was exalted to God's right hand. David died. But David says, according to Acts 2.34, that Yahweh said to my Lord. David is referring to someone else as this second Lord figure that is exalted to God's right hand and who ascends to heaven. Clearly, Yahweh there is described as the God who has made Jesus. God has made this second Lord figure, Lord and Christ, indicating that the second Lord figure is a title. The Lord there is a title. God has made him Lord. It's not like the first Lord, which is a reference to Yahweh, the personal name of God. The second Lord figure has Lord as a title. And that second Lord figure is Jesus. And then in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, right before he dies as a martyr, it says, Being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's Acts 7, verses 55 through 56. And we can see the allusion here to Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus at the right hand of God. The second Lord is at the right hand of Yahweh. And Yahweh is described here as God, against the glory of God, that respectful circumlocution. But Stephen sees it with the heavens opening, which is an apocalyptic metaphor for the revealing and unveiling of heavenly information. And it defines Jesus as the Son of Man as the qualified, authorized, and empowered human being. A human being is standing at the right hand of God. The second Lord figure is a member of the human race. Point number four is the use of Psalm 110 in Paul, and we could spend an entire podcast dealing with this, but I want to make two very important points. The first point is that the title Lord that Paul uses for Jesus is almost certainly drawn upon from Psalm 110, verse 1. So as we see in Romans 1, 4, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. According to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus is our Lord, Romans 1, verse 4. Our Lord, that's the Lord that belongs to Paul and his readers indicating Lord there is a title. That Lord there cannot be Yahweh. You can't say the phrase, our Yahweh. It doesn't work that way. Jesus our Lord is Jesus our Lord, Lord functioning as a title. And since this is the Lord that has been raised from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, this is the one that's been raised from the dead and exalted to God's right hand, the Lord that is sitting at the right hand of God, according to Psalm 110, verse 1. 
So when Paul describes Jesus as our Lord, as my Lord, as your Lord, that Lord is the exalted Lord figure at the right hand of God, according to Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110 has deeply influenced the Christology of the Apostle Paul. And it's assumed that his readers are going to pick up on that particular point. The second thing from Paul is that he also is able to draw upon Psalm 110.1 to talk about Jesus at the right hand of God, but also to see the intercessory role that Jesus has. So in Romans 8.34, it says, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. That's interesting. So Christ is the one who is at the right hand of God. That's clearly drawn from Psalm 101. But also Christ functions as the one who intercedes for us. It's very interesting. So the intercessory role there, which one might think has some priestly implications to it, is connected here to Jesus being at the right hand of God. Perhaps Paul is seeing in Psalm 110.1 the connection of the exalted Lord at God's right hand and also the fact that this Lord is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Maybe, possibly, perhaps. It's much clearer in the book of Hebrews to where it's only a suggestion in Romans 8 verse 34. So let's move to the book of Hebrews. Point number five the use of Psalm 110 in the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews draws on Psalm 110 verse 1 and Psalm 110 verse 4 more than any other writer in the New Testament, at least explicitly with quotations. Some have argued that Psalm 110 is the most important text in the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews is just an exposition in a Jewish midrash of Psalm 110. That might be an overstatement, but not by much. So Hebrews opens up in chapter 1, verse 3, by saying that when he, Jesus, made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1, verse 3, clearly alluding to Psalm 110, verse 1, indicates that Jesus, after he died and made the purification of sins, he sat down at the majesty's right hand. Again, we're seeing that Yahweh is so holy that many of these New Testament authors don't even want to say his name. They want to just use this circumlocution. He is the right hand of power, or the right hand of the glory of God, or the right hand of the majesty on high. But clearly, Jesus is distinguished from this Yahweh figure. Jesus is at Yahweh's right hand. But Hebrews is the book that clearly indicates that Jesus is this high priest figure. The high priestly theology of Jesus Christ is drawn upon and clearly taught in the book of Hebrews, more than any other book in the New Testament. So one example is Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 19, which says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's Hebrews 6, verses 19 through 20. So Jesus has become a high priest forever, according 
to Melchizedek's order. So Jesus wasn't always a high priest. I know the word forever is a little confusing for some people. Jesus became a high priest forever. And he did this when he entered into this heavenly temple. When Jesus entered into this as a forerunner for us, he became a high priest forever. Not according to the order of the Levites, not according to the descendants of Aaron. He did it according to the order of Melchizedek. And that draws upon Psalm 110, verse 4. And this is how the author of Hebrews is going to indicate that Jesus functions as a priestly intercessor when Jesus is the descendant of Judah, not the descendant of Levi. Jesus functions as a priest in a different way than the Levitical priest. And the way that Jesus functions that way, according to the author of Hebrews, is that Jesus is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And since Psalm 110 is the favorite psalm of the author of Hebrews, he's able to say that Jesus is the exalted Lord at God's right hand. And at this exaltation, Jesus became the high priest forever. Not that he was always the high priest, he became the high priest and he will function perpetually as the high priest. And the author of Hebrews is going to continue to draw upon that theme in the rest of his book. There you can see that Hebrews is connecting those points that Jesus is the king and also is the high priest. So there you have it. That is the influence of Psalm 110, or at least a survey of Psalm 110's influence on New Testament messianic expectation. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please join us next week as we look at Psalm 118 and the ways in which the Messiah's role and vocation was drawn upon from this temple psalm. Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for absolutely free by subscribing on YouTube or iTunes, by giving us an honest review on iTunes, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation to support the podcast, you can check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.